much of the workforce working from home due to the pandemic, some employers have taken to surveilling their employees in their homes through their computers. But is this sort of home surveillance legal? We get stuck into that question on this episode of the Media Law Podcast. Agent Track helps organizations to monitor, track their team's activity data, driving productivity by around 10%. Agent Track is easily deployable onto the employee's devices. Once installed, it begins collecting activity and productivity data on the user, helping managers understand what their workforce is doing. Our cloud-based manager's dashboard, available in light and dark modes, allows a live 360-degree view of the employee's desktop, audio, and webcam also giving a complete insight into the employee's keyboard, mouse, app, and URL activity. Hello, and welcome to the Media Law Podcast. I'm Tom Bennett. Employers have long subjected their employees to monitoring in their workplaces for purposes of efficiency. But as the pandemic has kept many workers out of their offices and working from home, employers have kept up the surveillance by deploying surveillance programs on their employees' computers. The amount of data collected by these programs can be startling. From recording the times that the computer and the employer's software becomes active and goes offline again, to mirroring the employee's computer screen, to tracking mouse and keyboard usage, listening and recording audio and video of the employee via the computer's microphone and webcam, it's clear that the level of surveillance to which some employees are being subjected is extreme. But is it legal? If an Englishman's home was once his castle, what is it now in this age of pandemic-induced home working? Joining me to discuss the legality of this sort of surveillance are my usual co-host Paul Rag. Hi, Paul. Hi, Tom. And Dr. Eleni Franciu of Durham University Law School, a scholar who has written recently on this very issue. Hi, Eleni. Hello, Tom. So if I can start then uh, with your recent writings on this, Eleni, um, could you outline what the issue is as you see it and what your angle on it is? Sure. Um, so uh, what we have been seeing during the COVID-19 pandemic is a proliferation um, in um, monitoring uh, during homeworking, so with homeworking having become uh, the norm for for many of us, um, employers have started to monitor them their employees differently, uh, particularly by using uh, software uh, that tracks productivity um, through uh, the collection of, of uh, data via uh, email, their um, uh, uh, trackpads, um, through video, um, even picture taking uh, apps. Um, now, the, the, so the, app, the, the um, apps can vary quite significantly. Um, as I said, you know, there, there can be an, a vast number um, of, of ways in which uh, employers can track employees, uh, but all of them are intended essentially um, to do what you know, the regular um, employer would be doing by walking down um, you know, the, the, uh, the office and tapping uh, on shoulders, uh, just checking that employers, are, that employees are doing what they should be, um, and that uh, they're clocking in um, at appropriate times um, 
are working productively and uh, not taking essentially a holiday um, whilst um, they should be working from home. That's, I suppose, the employer fear uh, during this period. Um, now, the, um, there are obviously protections um, on what kind of data can be collected by employers anyway under the DPA, the Data Protection Act 2018, um, as well as the uh, GDPR, um, that, um, the UK GDPR um, that has uh, succeeded the, the EU GDPR um, after Brexit. Um, so the, the difference between um, a regular monitoring and working from home monitoring um, is that um, we are uh, seeing employees um, working in, a, in an environment in which they have a much higher expectation of privacy. Um, so that raises a host of issues um, under Article 8 of the European Convention on Human Rights. And this is um, what I tried to highlight in a recent uh, blog post on the UK Labour Law blog, uh, where I argued that um, whereas um, the European Court of Human Rights um, has previously allowed some forms of employer monitoring during um, working hours at work, um, when employees are working from home, um, the expectation of privacy is associated uh, with a family home should uh, trump um, those um, um, yeah, the, uh, the, the, those allowances previously made uh, to employers. Um, the um, main issues that differ are the the um, uh, questions around image protection. Um, so whether whether uh, an employer uh, can, for example, be tracking um, through picture-based apps or through video surveillance uh, what an employee is doing um, within uh, their family homes or within within their private space more generally, uh, and particularly where that could affect members of their family um, or their their partner. Um, but also um, whether um, they can um, collect any data at all um, from private uh, computers, from private um, yeah, uh, facilities whilst the employee is working from home um, without having clearly communicated that information to the employees. Um, I said quite a lot there, I suppose. Um, I probably should stop, but, but in, in short, um, the uh, question I wanted to address really is that working from home and working from a physical workplace um, are quite different uh, from the perspective of Article 8 of the Convention and the, the European Court of Human Rights has never addressed uh, working from home. Um, so it, it, this raises some very interesting questions about what could um, be the standard of protection set under Article 8 of the Convention uh, should a case come before the uh, European Court of Human Rights. So before we perhaps explore some of the human rights arguments in a bit more detail and, and get into what Article 8 really provides for in this situation, um, Paul, I believe you've got some insight into the way that this issue might be treated as a matter of domestic UK employment law. Yeah. Okay. So, um, of course, the question the question is: if you are a, a worker or an employee or even a contractor who finds that the person you're working for is actually surveilling you, that is uh, monitoring uh, not only what you're doing 
during company time, but also um, where you're doing it, how often you're doing it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, of course, this raises uh, issues of privacy, but what can you actually um, do about it? And, and the answer, it seems to me, is, is not a lot because, um, uh, first of all, there are limitations based upon your status. Um, are you, uh, if you're an employee, for example, uh, and you are dismissed as a consequence of, of uh, this behavior, then um, you may or may not have a, a claim for unfair dismissal uh, that you can take to the employment tribunal. Or if you're not an employee, but a worker, instead, you might have a claim for wrongful dismissal. Uh, or if you're a, a contractor, you might have a claim uh, for breach of contract. Uh, but those uh, claims, to the extent that they are uh, litigable, um, only arise in circumstances where you are actually dismissed. The position is even more limited uh, in circumstances where employers take action uh, short of dismissal, uh, this is not usually something that you can ask uh, an employment tribunal uh, to uh, determine or to um, make a judgment on. So if there are limitations then on, in practice, what uh, a worker or an employee can do proactively under domestic employment law, then it starts to look like the only mechanisms for redress for any employee that feels victimized by uh, this surveillance uh, is going to be through some sort of human rights-based claim, whether that's um, initially brought domestically, either as a, a direct human rights claim, depends who the employer is. If the employer is an agent of the state, then the possibility of a direct claim under the Human Rights Act or uh, as a private law claim, perhaps a misuse of private information claim, or uh, a claim under uh, Data Protection Act, or GDPR. Um, and ultimately, uh, then we have to consider the possibility for a challenge in Strasbourg to the status of English law and this practice and the legality, apparent legality of this practice under English law. Um, so... In terms of what Article 8 provides, Eleni, you said that the Strasbourg Court has given us some case law on workplace surveillance that has sided broadly with the employers. Um, could you just briefly talk us through that case law? Um, so the main authority is the Barbulesco case, uh, paragraph 121 of which uh, lays down a set of considerations um, that national courts would need to take into account um, when um, balancing on the one hand um, an employee's um, privacy and on the other hand the um, employer's uh, legitimate interest in ensuring uh, that work um, is taking place um, during working hours. And now those requirements are whether there was notice of the monitoring, um, what the whether the extent of the monitoring um, and degree of intrusion into the employee's privacy uh, were appropriate. And here the court actually draws a distinction between uh, the flow and content of the uh, communications that are being monitored. Uh, so it draws a distinction, for example, between employer checks, say on uh, which websites the employee visits in general and uh, seeing what um, the employee is typing. 
um, into those websites in particular. So, for example, tracking uh, their um, movements um, on their um, trackpad um, or reading uh, the content of their private messages, um, with the latter obviously being a more intrusive uh, form of monitoring than the former. Um, then um, the third criterion is whether there were legitimate reasons to justify the monitoring uh, either of the flow of communication, so the less restrictive uh, type of monitoring, uh, or further reasons that could justify accessing content, uh, such as the content of email uh, correspondence, um, etc. And that would require weightier justification. And um, fourthly, whether there were less restrictive alternatives from the perspective of the employee's privacy. Fifth, um, whether um, the employee has suffered consequences uh, because of the monitoring uh, that has taken place. So was the employee, for example, dismissed um, because um, of uh, the monitoring? Um, and that was indeed the case in uh, Barbulescu. Um, and was the um, monitoring used for an, uh, an originally specified purpose for which um, the uh, em employer had notified uh, the employee in advance? And finally, uh, whether there are adequate safeguards for privacy. Um, so, for example, has the employer uh, done anything um, to um, minimize the um, content monitoring um, that they're um, coming into contact with? Um, so the, the case sets out uh, a list of things that um, national courts should weigh up and, and, and check um, before um, you know, before allowing um, employers um, to um, to monitor employee communications um, in a blanket way. Um, now, that's not to say that the case the case does allow, in principle, uh, employers uh, to monitor communications, uh, but it does set out some fairly strict criteria for how they can do so. And particularly important amongst those criteria are the requirement of notice and reasons, um, um, as well as any less restrictive alternatives. So those, I think, would play um, would play out quite interestingly um, in the working from home scenario. Of course, the requirement of notice mirrors the uh, obligation that employers have under the GDPR to inform uh, data subjects of the uh, use to which data collected about them will be put. Um, now, you you say you go on to say in your in your blog article that despite this broad these broad provisions permitting some degree of workplace surveillance from the Barbulescu case, when we look at the particular practices that are being used by employers for surveillance during the pandemic and we set that alongside a broader look at article 8 case law it becomes more apparent that these practices may not be lawful so i wonder if you could talk us through your analysis of that yeah um so some of the uh, things that we've seen are uh, picture-based tracking apps now, um, or even um, video surveillance. Now, those kinds of image protection is particularly significant uh, from the perspective of the uh, European Court of Human Rights. And uh, now the court uh, considers um, image as a, as a core part of one's identity, and that comes from its uh, von Hanover ruling. Um, so 
where um, the uh, where somebody's image is at stake, there is likely to be um, a much higher degree um, of um, proportionality scrutiny um, by the uh, European Court of Human Rights than where we're looking at, for example, um, say a, a, a strain of, of, of um, identifiable but not identified data, and we can we can get into. Uh, obviously, those details um, later on, if you like. Um, but with a, with respect to image uh, protection in particular, um, this could be um, quite an interesting uh, question, um, especially because the um, uh, expectation of privacy uh, in the place in, in of work becomes very relevant. So, um, I, one of my favorite cases is, is Antovich and Merkovich um, versus Montenegro, um, in which the the court actually found. Um, that um, the uh, non-covert use of video surveillance uh, in a university auditorium was too significant an intrusion into um, uh, the lecturer's private life. Um, now, the um, uh, lecturers had been given notice of the uh, monitoring, obviously, but um, the court still still found that um, because the purpose of that monitoring, um, as it had been uh, communicated to them, uh, was safety and uh, security, um, there was no reason why that monitoring should take place within a, a, an auditorium in which lectures were taking place. Um, that, you know, that should be distinguished from public entryways, the streets, etc. Um, so uh, video surveillance we are seeing is, is in, even within a, a physical workplace, um, is quite problematic. Um, when it happens um, within a person's home, when there's where there's a very clear expectation of privacy, I think um, the um, threshold is even higher. Um, now you might say, of course, that well, you know, we are within um, the circumstances of a, of, a, of a private home, but whilst um, we should be working, and so shouldn't that be um, a reason why um, you know the, that case, the case, the case could be distinguished? Um, but as the case law currently stands, there is nothing that suggests that just um, because the activity um, is um, public, the um, uh, family home could ever basically become public space. There is nothing in the case law that suggests at the moment uh, that a private residence um, could ever be considered um, um, a setting in which the expectation of privacy doesn't arise, uh, just because some uh, public or publicly oriented activities might take place there. Paul, what do you think about this? Is there a is there a, re- a rationale for in the current circumstances regarding a person's home or a portion of a person's home or a portion of time in a person's home as being less private than would normally be expected in a private residence because it has become the default place of work for so many people? Well, this is certainly a a question that deserves careful consideration. It doesn't have a straightforward answer. Uh, However, um, we're not quite at that stage uh, with the laws that we have in this country uh, where Um, we're talking about sort of fine distinctions. Uh, One of the key problems with employment law in this country is that we haven't really advanced much past the ideas uh, that were being touted in the uh, late 19th century. Um, 
we talk about employer employee status um, but really we're still talking about master and servant we're still talking about this idea that uh, the employer as the person with access to the money uh, is entitled to know where uh, his or her employers are and what they're doing um, whilst he or she is paying them and so the the problem at the moment is that um, really there isn't much uh, privacy uh, or privacy protection in place at all. It's not really that actionable. Um, partly this is because managerial prerogative has such uh, a, a big part to play still uh, in the way that employment law is administered in tribunals. Um, but also because employment tribunals and the Employment Appeal Tribunal has, over the years, made a complete hash of uh, the Human Rights Act and how the Human Rights Act impacts upon, if it impacts at all, uh, the employment relationship. So for us to even get to the position where we can talk sensibly about uh, privacy and um, the limits of it in the uh, workplace at home, uh, we first of all, I think, need to address this significant imbalance uh, that leaves us in a position where privacy doesn't have uh, much recognition at all in an employment law context. I'm wondering, you I mean, you said earlier, Paul, that um, one of the difficulties with employment law here in terms of challenging these practices is that unless uh, an employee or worker is dismissed, um, it's difficult for them to find the opportunity to bring a challenge. Now, I think we have in mind there the situation where um, uh, an employer monitors an employee and finds their performance to be uh, unsatisfactory. Maybe they're not spending enough hours each day sat directly in front of their webcam where they can be observed unless they appear to be shirking um, uh, and dismisses the employee who then may or may not be able to bring a challenge to that. But um, what about the situation in which an employee uh, perhaps unwilling to be so surveilled takes steps to subvert the surveillance, maybe by disabling the bits of the uh, computer monitoring equipment that, that are monitoring them, so mm -hmm. covers up the webcam, disables the microphone, perhaps, I don't know, uh, reconfigures the monitor so that uh, screen mirroring isn't easily possible. Mm -hmm. um, would an employer be entitled lawfully to dismiss an employee for uh, apparently failing to comply with the surveillance? Well, ultimately, it's a, it's, um, it's a question that's asked uh, by looking at the contract, by looking at what uh, the contract says. Um, now, if the uh, employee uh, has a contract that says... Um, through either directly in the contract itself or through policies which are incorporated into the contract, something like it is a condition of your employment that uh, you have these cameras on or you have this uh, information gathering on, 
then yes, the employer can uh, dismiss um, on that basis. So, um, and and the reason for that, I think, is because we still languish in this sort of uh, 19th century view that employees, uh, when they pitch up for work at the interview, are operating on the same uh, bargaining plane as the employer, and that if the employee doesn't like uh, the terms and conditions offered, uh, then the employee has the choice. Uh, They can either uh, refuse to be employed on those grounds, um, uh, or they can can accept it, uh, in which case they are bound by what they have agreed. So there's a sort of air of unreality still in the way that employment law uh, treats these issues. Um, now, I'm talking in the extreme here, of course, which I think is apparent, um, but there isn't much that can be done um, where uh, an employment contract puts the, the issue uh, in those kind of stark terms. And the only real um, uh, basis on which I think an employee uh, can object to this is is to... Um, resign to go somewhere else um, and maybe even uh, for there to be public opinion um, generated about these kind of provisions uh, which of itself is is uh, potentially career-ending. Um. One thing I do want to move on to talk about is the effect uh, of this surveillance on third parties, so on other members of the employee's family or household um, who might themselves be caught up in some of this surveillance. Because, uh, I, I, as uh, listeners of the podcast may well have picked up over the years, I have a longstanding interest in the privacy of third parties to these sorts of cases, the innocent bystanders that get caught up in in privacy problems. Um, so what is the position? Oh, maybe I'll come back to you on this one, Eleni. Um, what is the position for um, family members of the employee who end up getting, whether it's caught on uh, on the webcam or on the microphone or whether the correspondence that might be being typed between uh, employee and another person um, ends up being copied and surveilled and watched. What's the position for them? Yeah, this is really interesting. I agree with you, Tom. Um, it's one of the most the, the most interesting aspects of working from home, actually, especially as a lot of employees at the moment will be parent will, will be parents, you know, who might have childcare duties, you know, might be homeschooling their children at the same time as working, and so on. Um, the the there is no straightforward answer to this in the sense that. Um, it hasn't been litigated, but I think that the um, the European Court of Human Rights would be likely to take a quite um, strict position um, on any image monitoring of children. Um, it has actually done, um, it, it has emphasised uh, the, the seriousness of, of violations of Article 8 uh, for children in particular um, in uh, Sodermen. So it, it, one would think that if video monitoring were thought to be problematic um, generally, it would be particularly so um, if it affected children. Now, would that be the case for other forms of monitoring? Uh, So, for example, tracking activity. Um, 
on on a, on say a shared computer. So far, um, the court's uh, clarification, Barbulescu, on um, what um, employers can and cannot do uh, has related to the employer co- the employment contract. Um, so it would be very interesting um, to see how the court might actually um, treat the, in a sense, adver- inadvertent um, uh, yeah, flow of data uh, towards an employer uh, from parties that aren't um, uh, uh, parties to the, employ- to the employment relationship. Um, I think that there the proportionality standard would be much higher, of course, because if we- within the employment relationship itself uh, we have an emphasis on notice and proportionality, then we can imagine that that would be especially um, so uh, when it comes uh, to individuals who aren't um, a party to that relationship. Um, and again, especially um, to children who are uh, recognised as uh, particularly vulnerable uh, in the Convention. Yes. Paul, what thoughts do you have on the third parties issue? Because this arises all over the place in privacy law. Mm. Um, and it seems to be something that, well, I think the courts have struggled to deal with and with third parties in the sense of coming up with coherent, principled doctrinal responses to the problem of third party involvement in privacy cases? Uh, Yes, although I suppose the the third party issue um, is sort of less uh, apparent here in this context or the context that I understand you to be uh, advancing because, for example, if if the employer uh, breaches uh, the or misuses the private information of uh, a spouse or a child, uh, then the the spouse or the child has a direct action against the um, employer um, for either well, presumably data either under the Data Protection Act or. Uh, misuse of private information uh, taught and so they stop being a third party in the way that you've talked about third parties and become claimants in their own right Mm. Um, if though the third party interest arises in the context of uh, an employment tribunal complaint for example unfair dismissal or um, something of that nature uh, then um that could be problematic. However, as we've touched upon already, uh, I think, um, the Employment Tribunal and Employment Appeal Tribunal have made such a hash of the um, unf- uh, the Human Rights Act um, that they more or less reject the idea of um, rights claims existing in um, horizontal relationships. That is, where in circumstances where the employer... Uh, isn't um, captured by Section 6 of the Human Rights Act that puts this obligation on public authorities to act compatibly uh, with um, with European Convention rights. Again, I've expressed that very crudely, but that's more or less the position that we are in, that if you work for a private company and you bring a complaint based on uh, human rights, you have this hurdle to get over to show that actually your employer had an obligation to respect human rights in the first place. Um, Eleni, would you agree with that? Um, I think so. I mean, yes and no. I, 
It's probably a long story, um, you know, to to start disagreeing about the horizontal effect of the Human Rights Act now. But um, I I do think that if there were um, questions about third parties being involved um, in the monitoring, for example, some of the issues that you were discussing earlier, um, you know, whether the, the employee could switch off the video, that might be treated differently. Um, because there, um, you know, the proportionality um, uh, assessment, I suppose, or the, the, the question of notice um, would be vitiated, wouldn't it? In the sense that the contract would have had to state, for example, well, you know, your children can also be captured. And of course, the contract can't say that. Um, so I wonder if that might be something that makes a difference. It, it is a very hypothetical, um, yeah, it's a, it's a hypothetical scenario. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm intrigued at the idea that there could be um, claims by affected, say, family members or household members for misuse of private information directly against the employer who's doing the surveilling. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder, I mean, I'm just thinking out loud here, whether we can kind of hypothesize what that claim would look like. Um, because we'd need to demonstrate a misuse of the information. There's that phantom Mm -hmm. third element in misuse of private information that nobody ever mentions. Mm -hmm. And they talk about stage one and stage two, reasonable expectation of privacy and proportionality analysis, respectively, casually forgetting it's a torch, so there has to be a wrongful act. Um, I mean, it, it, regular listeners will know my reservations about calling it a tort, but we'll leave those aside this this time. Mm-hmm. Um, there has to be a wrongful act, but there is case law that tells us that the mere acquisition of private information in non-consensual circumstances can amount to a misuse if there's a reasonable expectation that it would not be so acquired. Um so, you know, let's say you, we've got a situation where a spouse or a child is caught on camera, not doing anything particularly private, but still existing and going about their everyday business in their home, in that kind of zone of private interaction that the Strasbourg court talks about in Von Hanover. So we can be pretty confident that it would be treated as private. Mm-hmm. Um do they have a reasonable expectation of privacy and is the brief acquisition of this information via webcam monitoring sufficient, do you think, to, to, to constitute a misuse in the eyes of the court? So does it depend on what then happens to that data, whether it is kept, whether it is not, whether it is viewed, whether it's archived? What are, you, what are your thoughts? Obviously, it depends on the, the circumstances and the nature of what's being done. When we look at um, uh, cases, decided cases in the UK, uh, Chengai's Ninaman, for example, um, or Galati and MGM, the uh, the cause of action has been the relation to the mere acquisition of information and not necessarily subsequent publication. However, uh, that sense of wrongdoing um, although not fully articulated by the courts, is kind of apparent in the, the facts of those cases. So in Chengai's Ninaman, this idea of uh, gaining access to sensitive financial information um, in order to uh, give it to the other spouse in divorce proceedings. Uh, in Galati, of course, it was phone hacking. Um, we could 
we could think of a, a hypothetical that um, sort of mirrors or matches uh, that level of uh, immorality, I think. If um, the employer is operating uh, in circumstances where the employee doesn't necessarily know that they are being filmed, um, for example, they don't know that the employer has access to the uh, camera, for example, on a, on a laptop, um, then there could be circumstances, I think, where even uh, merely going about one's day-to-day -day routine and sort of appearing on screen uh, could be thought to be uh, an actionable, uh, well, certainly satisfy uh, the threshold test in Campbell. Um, because I think the courts would be quick to find there is a reasonable expectation of privacy in sort of wandering about one's one's home. Um, I think where it starts to get murkier is if there is um, a clause in a contract that says we will monitor you 24 hours a day. Uh, sorry, not 24 hours a day. Uh, we will monitor you during your work working hours. And that's in... Um, uh, explicitly stated in the contract, but uh, the partner fails to mention it um, to the other person in their relationship, that could be slightly more problematic because still the the other person living in the home doesn't expect to be filmed and could be said to have a reasonable expectation of privacy. But then the question is, the reasonable expectation of privacy against whom? Is it against the employer who is doing this? Or is there some... Uh, liability uh, on the partner's uh, shoulders for failing to mention this fact. That's very interesting. If I may just pick up on that point. Um, so I would agree entirely um, with Paul's assessment. I mean, the, the interesting thing for the European Court of Human Rights would be that um, the home is protected when 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 the protection of the home under Article 8 um, is concerned. Um, the home protect also includes, you know, use of the amenities of the home, right? So the, the ability to enjoy uh, being um, in one's uh, property. Mm. Um, so it, it is an interesting uh, question whether um, one would be able to actually bring a case even against, say, the United Kingdom or any other uh, contracting parties um, of the convention for failing to protect legislatively employees from monitoring within their home that could affect um, third parties. Now, of course, um, Paul obviously rightly mentioned whether that, you know, would reach the level of severity uh, that would amount, you know, to a breach of the convention is a different story. Um, but but, but, in, but as a matter of principle, um, at least in cases like Morena Gomez, for example, the court does protect um, enjoyment of the home and, and of its amenities. So, not only uh, for the person um, who is in the employment relationship, but also uh, for the person who um, lives in the home, you know, regardless of that uh, employment relationship. There's a scenario that I'd be quite interested in. Though. It, it takes us away from the privacy issue, um, which is if the employer is monitoring the employee, does the employer incur a duty of care? to do effective monitoring, and if something amiss is spotted, to do something about it. So, for example, if the employer has webcam monitoring of the employee and the employee suddenly suffers an acute illness, perhaps a stroke or choking on their lunch or whatever, 
um, does the employer incur a duty of care to summon medical help to the employee? Uh, well, I think hmm, I think the answer to that is no, isn't it? On the basis of a mission not being... I'm, I'm never quite clear well, on the mission. It would be a question of whether there's an assumption of responsibility. Well, it's interesting that I, I can't really answer the question either, but it, it is interesting that actually some of the um, employee uh, monitoring websites would probably say that that's one of the benefits of, um, of mm-hmm. monitoring employees, um, you know, that you, that you maintain uh, a relationship uh, between the employer and the employee, that you, know, you maintain uh, that level of contact and responsibility and care. Whether that's the case, I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure. I have my reservations. But yeah, I, I don't. We're now getting into um, the area of negligence, aren't we? As I understand yeah. it, there isn't a sort of good Samaritan law in operation in the in the UK as as there is in in other parts of continental Europe, for example. Um, no, that's true. Liability only really extends to omissions where there is some assumption of responsibility on the part of the defendant. I'm just, mm-hmm. I wonder whether the kind of flip side of engaging in the level of detailed monitoring, monitoring that makes it possible to assist could result in an assumption of responsibility. I'm almost certain the courts would say no, but it's an interesting hypothetical because it's also something that I'm fairly sure the English courts are never actually going to have to grapple with Mm. Um, uh, and so it might just be one of the great unanswered sort of things that could uh, appear in the end of term tort paper (laughs) yeah I, I wouldn't I wouldn't sort of I'd be reluctant I think if I was a judge to decide on that basis that they do have that obligation not only does it make it onerous for the employer, but as you say, it gives them a prima facie reason to defend their actions, to say, well, you know, we can we can monitor you more effectively and, you know, satisfy our uh, duty of care towards you uh, if we can see you 24 hours a day to make sure you're okay. I have a serious problem with that from a liberty perspective. Um, but in an age where the government can shut down the country uh, to ensure that we're all safe, Maybe, maybe it is legitimate. We are out of time. But thank you both very much for a very engaging discussion. Um, particularly, thank you, Eleni, for joining us today. Thank you, Tom. And Paul. And uh, yes, Paul and I will be back at some point before too long. You know how it works by now, listener. These appear every so often. Uh, So we'll see you for the next Media Law podcast. Until then, take care.